what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. Now, you've heard me, you've heard me say that before. It's actually one of my favorite phrases. It comes um, from a, a, an Anglican theologian by the name of Ashley Null. And it speaks to a lot of different situations. But the main point of it is that it speaks directly to the heart of the human condition, pun intended. You see, the human condition is as such, there we go, that, well, let me say it this way. Too often we believe that we are controlled by our reason. Too often we believe that if something makes rational sense, then we're going to, to choose to do that. And that's how we normally believe that we make our choices. What philosophers and theologians throughout the ages have been telling us is that that's not actually the way things work. What really controls us is our heart, our desires, the things that we love. If we love something, if we desire something, then we're going to choose and we're going to act according to those loves and desires, and then our mind is going to come up with all the kinds of rational justifications of why that choice was the right choice, or at least appropriate. What the heart loves, the will chooses, the mind justifies. Now, that's not actually a bad thing. That's not a bad thing. Um, Think of it this way. When God created us, He created us so that he might have fellowship with us. God created us so that we might live in communion with him and that we might have a relationship with God. God himself is essentially love. And so it makes sense that if we're going to grow in relationship with God, that that if God is going to create us to live into his presence, he's going to create us to love him and choose after him. However, we know how at least the original story goes, right? God created the, the first humans to live in communion with him, to love him. But then what happens? They get tempted by desires and things that seem more pleasing. And then when God confronts them about it, they start giving them all kinds of justifications and all kinds of excuses for why they did what they did. And ever since then, We've also been making up all kinds of excuses and all kinds of justifications to do, to live the way that, that, that we live. In fact, the reformers loved, had a phrase that went like this, that the heart of humanity is turned in on itself. That from the fall, basically all that we do and all that we think and all that we desire is just basically just ways to, to, to benefit ourselves. It's that everything that we do is selfishness. It comes from a place of selfishness. The idea that our hearts are hard is a motif that plays itself out all through the Old Testament. At the flood, God looked down at humanity and said, their hearts are wicked continually. After the flood, it didn't really change much. Pharaoh, his heart was hard, and that caused him to oppress Israel. Moses comes to Israel later when they're in the desert, and he says, things are going to change. Through Moses, 
God comes to Israel whose hearts were also hardened and continually chased after other God, gods. And God says this through Moses. He says, or Moses says this. He says, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart, Israel, and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love God, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and you will follow after his commands and that you will live. Israel had a hard heart. Later in the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 36, God speaks to Israel and he says, look, I am going to do a new thing among you. I'm going to remove your heart of stone and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. Moreover, I'm going to put my spirit within you and I'm going to cause you to walk in my ways and obey my rules. That's basically the heart of again, pun intended, the heart of the new covenant. You see, because if God's going to call us to live according to his ways, then God has to change our hearts. God has to change our hearts. And how does he do that? Well, that's the, the essence of the gospel, that we only love God because he first loved us. And how much did God love us? Well, God loved us so much that when we were yet sinners and we were yet unreconciled enemies with God, that God sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross and, and to forgive us of our sins. And then what did he do? He rose to new life, opening up to us a way of new life, of living with God. Moreover, God also put his spirit within, with us and so, that we might, so that we might chase after the desires of the Spirit, as Paul says in Romans 8. So friends, for those of us who are those of us who are Christians and have placed our faith in Christ, we do have a new heart. That's a new re- that is the reality for us. We have a heart that is, is a flesh that is, that is turned towards the things of God. However, the truth is, is that we live in a world that's constantly competing for our desires. If you don't believe me, go to the mall. We live in a world that is constantly competing for our desires. Our entire economy is set up to get us to buy stuff, and the best way to do that is to make us want something. Matthew 13, Matthew chapter 13. Jesus gives the famous parable of the sower, where, you know, the story, there's a a farmer that goes out and he sows seeds and he just kind of scatters it broadly and it, it falls on all different kinds of soil. One, different, one of the kinds of soil that it falls on is called the thorny soil. And in Matthew 13, verse 22, Jesus explains the meaning of that. And he says, look, he says, the, the seed that fell among the thorns refer, refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke out the word and make it unfruitful. Now, there are many things in this world that are, competes for our desires and money and, the, the, and money and status, the worries of the world is, is another way of saying status. Money and status definitely are some of the most primary things that compete for our desires. Yes, money and status can definitely be used for good things. That's actually going to be one of my points here in a little bit. It can be used for good things, but only if we're not distracted by the deceitfulness Because money and status can, as we're going to see, can make us only think of all the stuff that it can give for us and really play to our selfish desires. 
That's why this morning we're going to look at the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. So it's the gospel passage that we looked at, we read just a minute ago. So if you have your scriptures, let me go ahead and invite you to turn to Luke chapter 16. And we'll start in verse 19. Now, as you're turning to Luke chapter 16, let me preface this. I did not purposefully choose to preach on this passage the week after Randy laid out our vision for financial stability. I promise you that. It was simply where the lectionary fell for this week. I knew I had to preach. We're starting something new next week. I just chose the lectionary. However, I want to say that, that, that God has impeccable timing. God has impeccable timing. If you remember, two weeks ago, Mark Landon was here. And Mark Landon laid out a vision for justice in our city and the things that are on his heart and ways that we can, that we can partner with St. Patrick's to, to bring a little bit of the justice that was found in God's kingdom here to the Queen City. Then last week, Randy did lay out the uh, vision of our financial future and the possibility of a future building and, and how all of that can play into the vision that we believe that God is given us. It's not a coincidence that it's immediately following those two sermons that we experience the week that we've have been experiencing and probably will continue to experience here in, Queen, here in the Queen City, here in Charlotte. It has been a week. Our city and us, I believe, is going through a very significant Kairos moment. There's a very real Kairos moment. Now, if you don't know what Kairos moments are, Kairos is the, the, one of the two Greek words for time, it's not linear time, that's chronos, but kairos is this kind of moment in which time almost stands still. Something happens and it makes time stand still and it makes something stand out and it, and it calls us to pay attention to, to, uh, to reality in a way that we haven't before. And then it calls us, then it even calls us to action. If you're watching the news, you'll see that our city is in a Kairos moment. And we are a church committed to preaching God's kingdom in the Queen City here within, within Charlotte. And so I believe that brings us to a Kairos moment also. And I really want to believe that as I was looking over this, and you can ask Tammy, I almost preached on something different, but I believe that the Lord is, I believe the Lord wants to say something to us through this parable this morning for the time that, that we find ourselves in. So let's look at the parable. Let's, if you're turned to Luke chapter 16, let me say just a word of, of context. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus is, shock and surprise, having a confrontation with a group of Pharisees. And the way that he's confronting these, these Pharisees is through a series of parables. So Luke chapter 16 is just one of many parables that, that he's saying to them and trying to make a point to them. The immediate context of Luke chapter 16 is that there was, a, there was the parable of the unfaithful steward. The steward had been giving something and it wasn't, he wasn't stewarding his, his, uh, 
um, his boss's wealth properly and using it for the right things. And it's out of that that, God, that Jesus says the famous lines, you can't serve two masters. You'll love one and hate the other. Therefore, you cannot serve both God and money. Then immediately, that's verse 13 of chapter 16. Verse 14, Luke says this, describes it this way. He says, Then the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, then the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And they said to him, You, and Jesus said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. So money is definitely a primary, a central issue in this text. But there's something deeper. Money in in this whole series of parables is really only a symbol and a symptom of a very much, of a much larger problem. Looking back to, to chapter 15, we get the parable of of the prodigal son. And you know the parable. It's a son who takes his father's inheritance and squanders it on worldly living and then has, is left with nothing. And he's like, well, you know, I'm eating food that's being thrown to the pigs. Maybe I'll just go back to my father and see if I can at least be a slave. And he does, and the father opens, you know, you know welcomes him, him in with open arms and, and gives him this great feast. And, but in the background, there's this other brother that's there, and he's not so happy about this. He's actually kind of bitter. He's like, my brother does not deserve all of this stuff from my father's house. In fact, he's actually bitter because part of the story goes is that that brother believed that it was all for him. You see, what Jesus is trying to tell the Pharisees in, 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 so, many, in, in so many words is that you have been given something, but you, instead of using it properly— and the way you use that pro- properly is to be a blessing to others. You've kept it for yourself. And you've used it in such a way that you've excluded those who I want to bless through you. So it's in that context that we come to verse 19. And I'm, we're going to read through this. And I'm just going to pull out a, 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 a few things. In verse 19, read with me. It says, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen. He feasted sumptuously every day, and at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger from what fell from the rich man's table, and even the dogs would come and lick his sores. I want you to notice the contrast. You've got an unnamed man that all we know about him is that he's very rich, and he lives it up. He's wearing the best clothes. He's feasting sumptuously, which is every day. And even for the wealthy at the time, that would have been extreme. But then we have this other guy. We have this guy who has a name. He has sores. And that's about it. That's about it. Now, his name is Lazarus, which is the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew name Eleazar, which simply means the one who God helps. Notice where he is. He says it lays, he lays at the rich man's gate, or the entra- which is basically the entrance of his house. Please notice how Jesus is setting this up. There is a very, very wide divide 
between the rich man and Lazarus when it comes to economic standing and social standing. There is absolutely no divide between the rich man and Lazarus in physical distance. Lazarus is literally laying at his, at his doorstep. What that means, think about someone laying at your doorstep. You'd literally have to step over them just to get in and out of your house. The rich man, the, the Lazarus, Lazarus is laying at his doorstep, the rich man stepping over him. Because the rich man is simply distracted by all of his wealth and he's distracted by the things that he loves and all the things that his wealth can do for him. Verse 22, then it says, the poor man died and was carried away by the angels with a- to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried and in Hades, where he was being torment, tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus at his side. And he calls out, he says, Father Abraham, come have mercy on me and send Lazarus to just dip the tip of his finger into the cool water for, to cool off my tongue. For I am in agony in this flames. Jesus is continuing with the, this kind of dramatic separation to show that, that there, now their situations after death, which is inevitable for both of them, has completely changed. Lazarus is carried away to Abraham's bosom. Now, Abraham's bosom only occurs in this one passage in the New Testament, but in, popular, in the popular Jewish, um, uh, Jewish vernacular, Abraham's bosom was, was that place of kind of eternal bliss, what we might consider as heaven. Basically that when you die, you went to be with Abraham. There was also a connotation of what we would consider to be an eschatological heavenly banquet. In Luke 13, verse 22, Jesus tells, verse 28, uh, Jesus tells the Pharisees this. He says, You will see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of heaven. And the people will come from east and west and north and south, and they will recline at table, at the table in the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus is trying to say is that Lazarus, who was who didn't have access to, the, to a great feast on earth, now has access to a heavenly banquet. The rich man, however, as we can see, is not so lucky. He's in the place where he, is, where he once feasted sumptuously. Now he's just asking for a drop of water. Now, watch, pay attention to this. He's not in agony because he was rich. He's not in agony because he was rich. He's in agony because of what he did and also what he didn't do. He loved his wealth more than others and he loved what it could, more, more, than, more than other people and he loved all that it could do for him. Jesus is trying to make a point to the Pharisees that in the same way, the religious leaders we're keeping the blessing of Israel for themselves and excluding others for it. Israel, in a sense, loved their blessing but forgot to use it for the things that it was meant to be used for. And we talked about the Abrahamic blessing this morning in, 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 our, in our class, that Israel was blessed not just for themselves, but they were blessed to be a blessing to others. But yet they loved all that... that they loved all that they could, all that it could give them. 
around Israel, you had all the nations. And all the nations were strangers and they were aliens and they were exiles. They were exiled to all, to all the things that God wanted to give to them through, through Israel. But Israel had, a, had to be willing to use it properly. Now again, they got distracted by it. Because, why? Because money and wealth and status can definitely cause us to want to desire after other things. That's why he goes on and he says, look, in verse 25, Abraham said, child, remember that during your lifetime you received good things and Lazarus in like manner received evil things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Besides all of this, between you and us is this great chasm that has been fixed so that those who might want to pass from here to there cannot do so and, and no one can cross from there to here. But then he said, but Father Abraham, I beg you to, to, to send Lazarus to my father's house. Why? Because I have five brothers and I want him to warn them so that they don't come to this place of torment because he knew that their, his brothers had the same type of focus in their heart that he did. But Abraham's reply is actually very telling. He says, look, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. And he said, but no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham said, well, if they don't listen to the Moses and the prophets, then neither will they be convinced if someone rises from the dead. I love the entitlement that you find in the rich man. I don't love the entitlement. I love how it, it's... it's pointed out. God has given them something. God has given them something. And yet, it's not good enough. He gave them Moses and the prophets, and he's like, yeah, no, no, no. I want you to, I want you to reveal to me and to them on our own terms. Why don't you do something miraculous so that then we really be convinced? The fact that, as we see in other places throughout Scripture, and Jesus says this specifically to the Pharisees, that you, you want these miracles because of your hardness of heart. And the point is, is that even if you get a miracle, you're still not going to believe because your heart is not turned towards the things of God. Okay. So, what does God want to talk to us this morning about through this parable? What does God want to talk to us this morning about through, the, through this particular parable? We're talking about a rich man and Lazarus. And we're talking about all this stuff about heaven and hell and all these things. Here's, where, here's the, the things that I, that I believe that the Lord wants us to hear this morning for this Sunday after this week that we've just had. Friends, I want to remind us that through Jesus Christ, we are brought in to the blessing of Abraham that we looked at this morning in, 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 the old, in, in our Old Testament class. That we are the ones who are blessed. We're the ones who receive the blessing that, that God promised to Abraham. However, we're the people of God, and that blessing is not just for us only. It's for those around us. It's for everybody around us. Our city is also going through a real Kairos moment, like I said. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of tensions. 
And regardless of where we fall on our opinions of whether things are, whether things are justified or, or not, the point is, is that there, there is, there's real tensions and real problems within our city that is literally at our doorstep. And it is very easy, at least I know it is for me, to go about, to go throughout my day and, and to just focus on the things that I'm supposed to, that, that I focus on and, and not really, and not really notice other things. This week has shown us, this week has shown us that, well, we can't just ignore the real tensions and real issues that we have in our city. Because I do believe that God has been, that God has been telling us that he wants to use us, even as a church here and even as the small church that we are in the midst of a lot of other churches in the city, to share the blessing of God's kingdom with those who need it, with those who, are, who, who, don't, who don't have access to all the rights and the privileges of God's kingdom that we have. Well, how do we do that? Well, I think the text is pretty clear. I think one of the things that the text wants us to, to remember is to, well, listen to Moses and the prophets, whom we have. In Deuteronomy, Jesus, uh, God through Moses says this, something we all know. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, and all your strength. And then what? Love, love your neighbors as yourself. Exactly right. Through the prophet Jeremiah, in, ver- in chapter 9, the Lord tells us this. He says, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, and let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love. That's the, that's the word in Hebrew, hesed, which is sometimes translated God's loyal love, God's covenant love, God's unconditional love. I am the Lord who practices hesed. I practice justice. I practice righteousness in the earth. For it's in these things that my heart takes delight in. When we love God, when we love someone, we love someone for who they are, but what else do we do? We also love the things that they love. We come to love the things that they love. And so the more and more that, we, that our hearts are turned towards God and the more and more the things that, that, uh, that, the more that we love God, the more that we come to love the things that God loves. Micah 6, 8, again, something that we all know. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord, and what the Lord requires for you to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with the Lord. So what does that mean for us? Okay, so we know these passages. We, we know who God is, and we know that the things that God loves, God loves the unworthy sinner. God loves the outcast. Love, God loves the disenfranchised. We know that. So what should this Kairos moment have us do? Well, one of the things is, I believe it causes us to just check our hearts. Maybe it gives us a chance to check our hearts. Are we truly loving God and are we loving the things that, that God loves? 
Now, don't take that as an indictment. That's not a bad thing to do. It's something we should be doing all the time. I went and got a physical a couple weeks ago, and thank goodness everything came back okay for the most part. The doctor said, but you're in great health, except here's a few things you need to pay attention to that I would have never known if I had not gotten the physical. Nothing bad, but stuff to pay, just stuff to pay attention to. So I believe the Lord is just calling us today to check our hearts. What are the things that, are there things in our lives, both individually and in the life of our church, that, that where we don't love God as much as we should in that particular area? Because if there are things that we are, that we love that is not of God, it causes us to chase after them and to, and to, do, those, and to do those things. And even if they have nothing to do with the stuff that's going on in Charlotte, anytime that we're following after anything that is not of God, that we're loving things that are not of God, it causes a distraction. It causes us not to pay attention to everything else that's going on around us. And so I think one of the things that we can do when, when we look at the news and we're, we're going downtown and seeing, you know, seeing the stuff that's going on downtown is to say, okay, well, let me just check my heart here. And after we've checked our hearts, the next thing that I think that God calls us to do is confess those things before the Lord. Confession and repentance. Again, these aren't bad things. These aren't things that we, that we do because we feel guilty. These are things that part of living the normal Christian life that God calls us to do. Because when we carry around sins, then we're carrying around burdens unnecessarily. And God is a God who calls us to lay down our burdens before him. Again, not so that we can feel guilty, but so that we can be free to do the things that the Lord would have us to do in the world. Another thing that I think the Lord is calling us to do this morning is, is to continue living a life of invitation. To continue living a life of invitation. Now, we're pretty good at this. We, we are very good at when we see people who are in need and who are, who are outside, of the, outside of, the, of the church and outside of the kingdom of God to, to, to invite them in. We are very good at this. There is this principle that um, one of my former pastors used to use, and it's called the Kaizen principle. The Kaizen principle comes from the Japanese word Kaizen, um, and it means continually improving. Now, when he used to use it, and I used to get upset with him and say, so are you saying it's never good enough? And he's like, no, 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 no. That's not what it is. It's that things are so good right now, but we can always be better. Continue, continue in what you're doing. Continue on, continue on in, 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 continue on in what you're doing. And so, when we live a life of invitation, what the life of invitation does is just reminds us that we're bringing people in who don't have access to the kingdom of God to experience and have access to the, king, to the things of the kingdom of God. It is within our life together, when the church lives its life together, that the kingdom of God, the realities of the kingdom of God is experienced. When we do all the one anothering and love, loving one another and taking care of each other, that's where the kingdom of God is experienced. It's not experienced on our own. And there are those on the outside who need to experience this. I, I, I don't know if you know this, but anytime someone calls at the office or calls us and is like, you know, hey, we've got, a, got an issue. Can the church help out with this? 
we assess the, the issue, but one of the main things that we do is say, do you have a church home? Because if you have a church home, these, we, churches take care of their own. That's one of the good things that we, we do that really well. And so, but again, we want to be careful that we don't just kind of keep all that goodness to ourselves. That we go out and when we interact with the people in our cities that are literally on our front lawn, is the first thing that we're thinking, you need to have access to the same things that we have access to. Living a life of imitation. Being blessed to be a blessing. Also notice in Notice what Jesus is saying in, in the parable. Lazarus is laying at the doorstep. We don't know. He's got sores. We don't know if he's got leprosy. We don't know what it is. But for some reason, he's not able to go in in the door. Or in, he's not able to go in the, uh, in, into the gate. Maybe because it's physically shut off. Maybe he does not have the strength. But we know this. God doesn't call us to just sit around and wait for people to come to us. God doesn't just sit around and wait for people to come, come to us. God tells us to go because that's what Christ did. Go to those who are the outcast and who are the unworthy sinners and who are those who are in need of all the rights and privileges of the kingdom. Again, we know this, but I believe that God wants us to remember this. It's easy to kind of, it's easy for any church to have a, well, if we build it, they will come kind of mentality. You've seen the field of dreams, maybe. The idea of if they build it, if, if we build it, they will come. That's not the gospel. The gospel is go. But go to where? Does, is God calling us to go out and, and go, to, go to our cities and, and have the answer for systemic poverty? Is God calling us to go out and have the answer for systemic racism? Is God calling us to go out and change the world? If God gives us the, the answers for that, great. But I think the passage today tells us this, that we have a specific, that the rich man had a very specific person who had a name, a very specific person named Lazarus who was literally sitting at his doorstep. Literally sitting at his doorstep. We're in the middle of a city that is going through, going through a time this week. I know because I've talked to my neighbors about it. Everybody is anxious. Everybody is, is confused. Everybody is looking for answers. You don't have to go too far to bring hope to someone in, in the city of Charlotte. Literally, literally your front door. Again, if God gives us the, the resources to change the system... Wonderful. But I think he's calling us to a specific person at our doorstep. Who might that be? Well, the only way that we can continually know the answer to that is through prayer. We are a praying church. We are really good at that. And we know that prayer is the primary way that we participate with God's mission in the world. And God is calling us to continue to pray and to, and to ask and to put ourselves in a place where we can hear from him and say, what can we do as an individual and what can we do as a church to share the love of Christ in the city that's going through the time, that's going through the time 
that it's going through now. And you know what? And we may already be doing everything that, that we're doing. We might already be doing everything that God wants us to do. We have a great access to, to, to Lansdowne School. And maybe all, the only thing that he wants us is, as a church and King of Kings is to help some kids read. And if that's the case, praise be to God. Because, because God can take two loaves and five fish and turn it into something huge. And we get to be a part of it in whatever big or small ways. Again, I don't think God's calling us to change, to have an answer to the systemic issues that we have in our city, but I think he wants us to go to a specific person in our front yard. And so let me end with this. We look around the city, we look around all this stuff, and we're asking the Lord, okay, what can we do as a church and, and as individuals when I'm looking at the news and, and, and just kind of seeing what's going on regardless of wherever we are on, on the political scale? When we're looking at, when, when we're looking at our city in, in today, let me encourage you not to fear. Why? Because the Scripture tells us not to fear over and over and over again. Sometimes even going to the person in our front yard is kind of a scary thing. It need not be. Why? Because God has already gone before us to that. Also, when we look at chaos and unrest, remember that our God is a God who loves to bring order out of chaos. How do we know that? Well, because he started the whole Bible with bringing order out of chaos. And so let me encourage you, friends, that to, to when we leave here and we go throughout our week and all the things continue that, that, that continue, remember that you've been blessed to be a blessing. We've been blessed for times such as this. We've been blessed to bring hope to people who don't have hope and to bring comfort to those who are, who are in need. This is the kind of things that the Lord is already preparing us for. And let, me, and let me just end by saying that he's, gonna, that he's going before us and he's calling us not to be afraid in doing that. Why? Because, what does it say in 1 John? That perfect love casts out fear and we have a city that needs to know the love of God. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.